take your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 2. Today we're going to be examining verses 18 through 22. Hear now the Word of God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's God's word for us this morning. Let's go to God now and ask for him to bless it. Father, we need you to speak to us and to, Holy Spirit, illuminate this passage so we can understand it. God, we, we need you today to help us understand. Um, God, I pray that our lives can change in response to your word um, this morning, that we can receive it um, humbly and gladly and obediently, and that we can love Jesus more today because of your word and guard us from error um, as, we, as we come to it, Lord. And I pray that you can be glorified through what happens now. In your name, Jesus. Amen. There are certain people in this world, and maybe even in this room, who are afflicted with a condition where you are tempted to laugh at inappropriate times. Is there anybody in here who may be tempted to laugh at inappropriate times? This has happened to me over and over again, whether it is in classrooms or at funerals or at Thanksgiving dinner. And it's always worse when you have that partner in crime that you keep making eye contact with and you just can't look at that one person because you know if you look at them, you're going to laugh. Now, as we all know, there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about laughter. However, there are certain circumstances where laughing is inappropriate. And that's kind of the point of the sermon today, is that in certain circumstances there are some inappropriate things to do. However, what we see in this sermon is that the point is flipped, in a sense, where um, they're, they're asking this question about solemn activities, and Jesus is saying this isn't the time for fasting or being solemn. Actually, this is a time to party is what he argues. And so we have two points today. Jesus brings gladness in verses 18 through 20, and Jesus brings newness in verses 21 through 22. And one of the reasons that I truly do love expository preaching is because it forces us to look at texts like this. Okay, you probably haven't heard a ton of sermons on Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It forces us to slow down and study things. And I'm really excited because I think this passage, if we, if we hear what God has to say to us through it, it will 
completely transform our spiritual lives and, and will grow us in our walks with Jesus. So it's really good you're here to hear this word from Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. And we just need to trust and ask the Holy Spirit to help us hear and understand and apply God's word. So Jesus brings gladness. We see this in verses 18 through 20. This passage includes three different religious movements. Okay, we see John and his disciples, the Pharisees and their disciples, and Jesus and his disciples. And one of these things is not like the other. And of course, it's Jesus' crew. What's the deal? They aren't fasting while the other two religious movements were. So in today's passage, as we'll see in verse 18, it says, And people came to Jesus and asked him the question, Why? Why aren't your disciples fasting? There's nothing in this passage, 18 through 22, that indicates this is a confrontational question. There's nothing in here to show it's aggressive or anything like that. But, you know, you've got to take Scripture in its context. So if you look what happens before this story, in verses 15 through 17, we see confrontation. And then we look at what happens after this story in verses 23 through 27, there's confrontation. And then after that in chapter 3, um, it ends in verse 6 where it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, so all this is leading up to the religious leaders saying we've got to destroy this man, Jesus Christ. So it's safe to say that this question was basically asking Jesus, if your movement is so great, if you are so great, then why is your movement producing so much less religious energy than the other movements? Why aren't your disciples fasting? What's going on? Now, the deal with fasting is, let's just say for now, we're going to define this later, um, is refraining from food for spiritual purposes. There was one biblically required fast on the Day of Atonement. This was once a year, and the whole nation fasted. Later on in Israel's history, a couple more fasts were added. But at this time in history, the Pharisees were fasting every Monday and Thursday. Okay, every Monday and Thursday they fast. We see this in Luke 18, 12, where um, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. And ironically, the Pharisees fasted um, in anticipation of the Messiah. So why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? What's going on here? As we see in the text, Jesus' argument for his disciples' lack of fasting is that it would be inappropriate. It would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast. Jesus says that fasting at this point in time would be like laughing at a funeral. Fasting is a solemn activity, and Jesus has brought gladness. And so what we see in verse 19 is that Jesus uses a metaphor of a wedding. So imagine a wedding. You know, you have eating, you have dancing, you have um, the YMCA. You, you know, a, a wedding is not the time to fast. It's the time to feast. A wedding isn't a time to feel broken over your sins, right? It's a time to be joyful and glad. In this metaphor, as we'll see, Jesus is the bridegroom, he's the groom, and the disciples are the wedding party, the wedding guests. And what Jesus says in verse 19, he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
Do you see that strong language there? Not that they don't want to fast or it'd be inappropriate to fast, but he says, as long as the groom is here, the guests cannot fast. Jesus brings such gladness that fasting isn't an option on the table at the moment in his presence. I hope your view of Jesus includes joy like this. So often, um, we can think of Jesus and the things of God like a funeral, can we not? As so solemn, such a killjoy, so depressing and serious. But no, Jesus equates his presence like a wedding feast. I hope you have the biblical viewpoint of Psalm 1611, which says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. So in Jesus' presence, there is joy and feasting and gladness and pleasure. That's what Jesus brings. So his presence doesn't lead to fasting. It leads to feasting. So that's what Jesus says. It's inappropriate. Now in verse 20, there's this interesting, vague statement where Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This would be extremely vague when he originally said it, but to us, in our point of redemptive history, um, this isn't very vague at all, right? It makes perfect sense to us about what he's referring to here. Typically, a bridegroom leaves a wedding, does he not, with his bride, that's what typically happens in a wedding. But here Jesus uses language of the bridegroom being taken away from the party. This is violent language, which seems like a subtle reference to what's eventually going to happen with his abrupt departure from earth via his crucifixion. And this language, taken away from, um, harkens back to Isaiah 53, 8. Um, I think it'll be on the screen. Um, 53, 8, which says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That's the exact thing in verse 20 there. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of his people. So Jesus is saying, hey, right now, my presence is here. I'm with my disciples. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time of feasting, of gladness, of joy because they're in my presence. But a time's going to come where I'm going to be taken away, ripped away from this earth, and they will fast on that day. Now, one interesting thing, if we zoom out and look at this metaphor of Jesus being the bridegroom, his disciples being the wedding guest, is that this bridegroom title, this bridegroom metaphor in the Old Testament was not a metaphor used for the Messiah. This is not a messianic title. But in the Old Testament, this metaphor is used for God himself. So Jesus is not using a messianic title like Christ or the Son of Man like we saw a couple weeks ago, but instead he's using a divine title. Israel's husband in the Old Testament is not the Messiah. Israel's husband in the Old Testament is God himself. Look at Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So who's Israel's husband here? The God of the whole earth. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Who's the bridegroom there? God himself. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So in this passage, Mark chapter 2, as Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, he's putting himself in God's place. And while the bridegroom is present, there is joy. Not the time to fast, but one day the bridegroom is going to be taken away and it will be time to fast. But that fasting just reminds God's people that there is a day when the bridegroom is coming back. And this all points us to the future feast of gladness where all our desires will be eternally fulfilled in the presence of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, forever. Good news, yes. When the bride, there's joy right now, the the bridegroom is taken away, but we have promise in Scripture that the bridegroom is going to come back and there will be joy in that day. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Right this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb it's good news so jesus is with his disciples a time of joy he's leaving it's going to be a time of fasting but soon will come a day when jesus returns for the marriage supper of the lamb where his people will rejoice and be glad for all eternity our next point is jesus brings newness in verses 21 through 22. Now, um, these parables, both, they're, they're parables, by the way, stories Jesus is telling for a point, and they both have the same point in my um, interpretation of it, um, but they're both kind of confusing, so let's break them down for a second. Um, the first one is the parable of the unshrunk cloth in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Uh, does anybody have one of those really old shirts that you wear when you're not going to see anybody you know, and it's tattered and just terrible? Um, I have one like this. Chelsea knows exactly which one I'm talking about, right? Now let's say, please pray for this to never happen. But let's say that shirt one day gets a hole in it. What will have to be done because the shirt is so comfortable is that repairs will have to be made. Now I'm no sewer. I don't know anything about sewing. Go, I've asked the quilters about that. Um, but what Jesus says here, if on that day, if it ever happens, to not get a brand new unshrunk piece of garment to, to, to sew on that nice shirt because what will happen is that new piece of cloth that hasn't been washed one billion times like this shirt I'm thinking of is will, will shrink and then a tear will happen in the shirt that was worse than the one before. That's pretty easy to understand but the, the point of the parable, what he's trying to say here is you can't combine the new with the old. You have to keep them separate. Okay, Then we see the, the, the second parable um, the parable of the new wine in verse 22, now I know even less about making wine than I know sewing. 
actually I guess they're probably pretty even at like nothing. Like all I know about both topics is from Bible commentaries, okay? I have no experience in either field. But here's what I learned from my Bible, and I promise this is Bible commentaries, okay? Okay, so wineskins were made with leather, and at first this leather is flexible and soft, and you pour some wine in there, and it ferments, and when it ferments, it expands. Okay, that's all good. But if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, that wineskin would be, the leather would be hardened, and, and stiff. And since it was already hardened, once the wine ferments and expands, it would bust the leather. Thus, all the wine would be poured out. All the skin would be destroyed and nobody would have anything there. So what he says here is you had to put new wine in fresh wineskins. The point here of the parable, same as before, you can't combine the new with the old. And actually, in both of these parables, Jesus makes the point that no one does these things. Notice that verse 21 starts with no one sows that in verse 22 and no one puts. So he's, he's saying it's unthinkable to combine this new wine, this new fabric with this old garment or these old wineskins. So what Jesus is saying in both these many parables is that he is bringing something new that cannot be contained by the old. There is a shift happening through Jesus Christ that is going to burst the old form of religion. So Jesus is making the point that you can't take Jesus and fit him into your old system or sew Jesus into the shirt that you already have. No, Jesus is bringing new wine that requires fresh wineskins. Now in one sense... This shows us that while the Old Testament and New Testament is one consistent story of God's redemption, there is a shift when Jesus comes. Jesus brings new wine. He brings a new covenant. That's why in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he refers to the wine as his own blood. That's what we talk about every time we do the Lord's Supper here. In Mark 14, 24, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So in other words... Through Jesus and his blood, there is a new way to relate to God. That's what he's saying. Hey, I've I've brought new wine. There's a new way to relate to God because of what I'm doing. This is prophesied. This is not in in, um, contradiction to the Old Testament by no means. It's actually in fulfillment of the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah 31 um, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, there's the, there's the bridegroom imagery again, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the Old Testament prophesied that a new covenant would be made. There would be new wine that was coming. And Jesus has come to bring that new thing. The kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees here that you can't take this new thing and put it in the same old container. It comes with newness. 
Now, this was a temptation in response to Jesus right here, trying to force Jesus' disciples to act like everyone else. This was a temptation in the early church when the Galatian Judaizers were, attempted, were attempting to require circumcision to be saved. They were taking the old wineskins and trying to force the new wine inside of it. They were trying to combine the old with the new. But this is also a temptation for us today where people try to contain the new wine of Jesus Christ within their old wineskins of their worldly and sinful lives. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17? This says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can't combine the old with the new. To possess the new wine of Jesus Christ means to do away with the old wineskins of your past sin. Uh, I read this quote from J.C. Ryle this week. It said, There are thousands who are trying to reconcile the service of Christ and the service of the world. To have the name of Christian and yet live the life of the ungodly. To keep in with the servants of pleasure and sin, and yet be the followers of the crucified Jesus at the same time. In a word, they are trying to enjoy the new wine, and yet cling to the old wineskins. What this passage shows us is that you can never add Jesus to your life. You can never add Jesus to your routine. You can never add Jesus to your sinful lifestyle or add Jesus to your worldview. Does that make sense? Jesus is not something you add to your life. Jesus replaces your life. Jesus replaces your routine. Jesus replaces your worldview. He's not just a portion, but he takes over. You can't maintain the old while taking on the new. No, the new replaces the old. That's what we learn about Jesus here. He has to take over. He has to replace. He is the new wine of the covenant. And we relate to God through Jesus Christ alone. All right, in application slash conclusion. Now, it's not a conclusion like we're done in two minutes, okay? So don't hear conclusion and think that. But I want to I step back from this passage as we, as we talked about it. And I want to talk about and challenge you with the spiritual discipline of fasting. It's kind of, and, and, and sorry if you're, you're dreading that you came this Sunday that we're talking about fasting, okay? But we're, we're seeing in the Bible, we see it's kind of behind the scenes in this passage where it's what Jesus asked about. But what I want to show you is, you know, Jesus' Jesus' argument here is that his disciples don't need to fast right now in the context of this passage when it historically happened, correct? He says, as long as, verse 19, they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, But then in verse 20 he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then, talking about his disciples, they will fast in that day. Do you see that? They, the disciples of Jesus, will fast in that day when the bridegroom is away. Brothers and sisters, we are in that day when the bridegroom is currently not here. He's he's not present on earth in that way. And so, therefore, I want to suggest to you that we are called by God's word, by Jesus himself, to fast. We see it throughout the book of Acts. Acts 13.2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. 
Acts 14, 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see the early church fasting. What is fasting? Donald Whitney said, Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. A believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. I got that from Donald Whitney, who is a professor of mine up at Southern Seminary. Uh, I've plugged this book before, but his book, um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, is really good. If you want to read, a lot of the material I'm talking about fasting comes from that book today. Uh, But first, in this definition of fasting, I want you to notice that it's for believers. This is not to earn anything from God. Fasting isn't going to earn your salvation. Fasting isn't going to make God love you or give you something. I want to be clear about that. Instead, fasting is a way of putting your prayers in underline and in bold. Fasting is a way to show yourself that you should hunger for God more than you hunger for food. Fasting is a way to eliminate worldly distraction so that you can storm heaven's gates in prayer. Notice that in this definition, it's an abstinence from food. You can fast from other things. I think that's biblically permissible, like social media or TV or a hobby or something like that. That is all good. But the Bible consistently only uses the term fasting to talk about abstinence from food. That's, that's, that's the only time, only way it talks about fasting. And then finally, I want to point out that this is for spiritual purposes. Remember, the definition is Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So this is not a way to drop some pounds, okay? I'm not giving you guys like a, a weight loss plan or, or a health plan or anything like this. Is, this is spiritual. And it's to be done for a spiritual purpose. Um, Donald Whitney in his book lists purposes to, to fast, and those include to strengthen your prayer life, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, to seek deliverance or protection, to express repentance, to humble yourself, to pray for God's work in the world, like our church or missions or revival, to pray for others, to overcome temptation, to express love and worship to God. And he says that's the main one, is to to fast, to express your love and worship God and get closer to him. So there's all these reasons to fast. But in our passage today, Jesus clearly expects for his disciples to fast one day. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, I want to read verses 16 through 18. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's word with you. It says, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, of course, in this passage, we get some spiritual principles for fasting, do we not? Specifically about how fasting is supposed to be done in secret it's not supposed to be for a show it's not supposed to be so people will know that you're doing it and receive a reward from people that's not the purpose for fasting but I also want you to notice two phrases in verses 16 and 17 verse 16 starts and when you fast verse 17 starts but when you fast Jesus doesn't say 
if you fast or if you ever find yourself in a fast. No, he assumes that his disciples are going to be fasting and gives principles to God how they do it. So my question is, why is this so missing in our church today? Is this not such a neglected spiritual discipline? And let me say, it's neglected in my own spiritual life as well, so it's not me pointing fingers at you guys, but it's me pointing fingers at all of us. If Jesus says, when you fast, and when you fast, and my disciples will fast, and then we look at our churches and we don't see much fasting. Now maybe, you know, Jesus has to do it in secret. Maybe you guys are just doing a really good job at the secret part. Maybe you are. And if, if it's just me, I'm going to repent by myself, okay? I'm fine with repenting by myself. So let me just ask the question, is this spiritual discipline missing in your life? This is probably one of the most countercultural things we can do in America today, is it not? I mean, we are a culture all about immediate gratification and good food and listening to our desires. But Jesus here in God's word today calls us to deny ourselves so that we can pursue God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus expects and commands that his disciples will fast. Also in Matthew 6, I want to stir you up with the promise here. Do you see the promise in Scripture? Clearly, in verse 18, it says, And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do you see that in the text? Jesus promises that God will reward fasting. Donald Whitney says, As certain as any promise in Scripture is the promise that God will bless you and reward you when you fast according to his word. There's a promise attached to this discipline. Pursue God in fasting and prayer, and God will bless it. So let's take up God on this promise. I know it's countercultural. I know it's hard. I know we love our food. I know it's inconvenient. But God's, Jesus says here in his word that if, if we fast according, biblically that God's going to bless it so imagine how he will bless your spiritual life if you pursue him in prayer and fasting like he's called us to do in his word God promises that he'll use fasting to grow you he promises it so let's take him up on that okay how do we do it if you are physically able I want to encourage you based on God's word to skip one or two meals maybe three Okay, it depends on what you want to do for a specific spiritual purpose. I was talking to Grant earlier, and uh, he was like, now, are you about to call a fast right after church because I have lunch plans? And that's not what we're doing, okay? That's not what we're doing at all. No, no, no. So, you know, skip one meal, two meals for a specific spiritual purpose. Now, if that's not physically possible for you, I know it's not for some people, you know, maybe you physically, you, you, you limit your food intake in some way. I'm not asking you to do anything irresponsible. So what will fasting do? Here's why I want to be very clear what happens if you, if you fast this week. This is going to blow your mind. But you will get hungry. Yep. And then, this is what you do. Is that every single time you feel that hunger pain, it should remind you of the purpose you're fasting for and prompt you to pray for that thing. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying to fast and, and just sit there, but I've got to make it through, I've got to make it through, I've got to make it through. Let's push through, let's push through. No, 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 that's not what fasting is. Fasting, so what you do is you, you skip a meal, let's say you skip breakfast and lunch, and then about 10 o'clock you say, I'm hungry. 
oh yeah, I'm fasting, let me pray for revival. Does that make sense? And then when it's, it's lunchtime, instead of going to lunch with your friends, you say, I'm going to take some time, I'm going to take 30 minutes, I'm going to pray for a revival. And then when you're in traffic and you're getting hungry, you say, oh yeah, I'm fasting, let me pray for a revival. That's what fasting is. And I just want to encourage you guys with the promise again that Jesus expects it, it's in Scripture, he promises he'll bless it. And so here's maybe the most important thing. What I want to challenge you to do before you leave this room in our response time, if, if God's calling you to do this, I want to challenge you, if you're a Christian, why don't you go ahead and plan when you're going to fast? Write it down on your calendar, write it down on a note, put it in your phone. I just don't want, you know, you to have good intentions and you to feel called to do this and then ironically you go to lunch and forget all about it. Um, I want you to, to take God's word, his promise of fasting, and, and intentionally say, okay, right here, this date, I'm going to skip breakfast to pursue God in prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast for the spiritual purpose. And write your spiritual purpose down as well. I want to encourage you to do that. And, and trust God that he will bless it. Last thing I want to say is that if you are not a follower of Christ in this room, I want to be clear that fasting will do you no good with God. I don't want you to hear this message and think that you're going to get anything out of it. Okay? If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to get nothing out of fasting. If anything, it, it might just push you farther away from Jesus in self-righteousness. But you need to instead feast on Jesus Christ. That's why I want to encourage you. If, you. if you don't know Jesus, I don't want you to fast and try to earn something. I want you to feast on Jesus Christ. That's what you need to do today. You need to believe in Jesus who lived, died, and lived again. And he is the only way to be accepted by God. Who, he's the only way to enter into this endless feast that he promises in Scripture in Revelation 19. Okay, so if you're a believer in Christ, I want to challenge you with God's word when it comes to fasting. I want to be a fasting church, a praying church. Okay, so I, I pray that God's word will work on your heart. Um, like I said, during this response time, do some work with the Lord. Do some scheduling and calendaring. I want you to do that, okay, as we sing this song together. Let's pray and ask God to apply this word to us. Father, we love you. God's challenging word. God, I pray that you can grow us, that we, you can discipline ourselves, that you can grow us in disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. God, I pray that we can be a church marked by fasting in a, in a, in a way that's centered on your word, God. Um, I pray that you can grow us. God, I pray that you can, Holy Spirit, convict us of sin, convict us of things that we're not doing that we're supposed to be doing. But God, I pray there's no, there's no guilt in this room, God. I pray that we just see the promise and see what's available to us, Lord, and see what we're missing out on. God, and I pray that you can um, grow us in this area. God, I pray that in the text that we saw, Lord, that we can recognize you, Jesus, as the, the center of gladness and joy. God, that you can completely um, define our lives. Like it says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears. God, I pray that you can be our life in this room. And God, I pray that can even change the way we relate to food the way we relate to our own desires. And God, I pray that our greatest desire is you. God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, we want to seek after you this week. God, I pray that you can bless us according to the promise in your word. In your name, Jesus. Amen.